Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who caused havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. 
Peter went with them. And when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Well, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Please do have a seat and turn back to Acts chapter 9 with me, if you wouldn't mind, uh, page uh, 1103. Uh, My name's Andy, if we haven't met. Love to meet you afterwards. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to spend the next few moments, uh, half an hour, looking at... um, this passage from Acts together, and so let me pray. Our Lord God, as we come to this wonderful text, we pray that your word would be our guide, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, here's a a question for you. Um, Is it arrogant... Uh, Is it uh, unkind or offensive for Christians to seek to evangelize people of other religions? Uh, Is it arrogant to speak to people of other faiths and seek to change their mind about God and life and death and religion and the universe and about Jesus Christ? Is it arrogant to tell them that they're wrong and that they need to change? Uh, I was having dinner with some friends back in the autumn, and a friend said pretty much exactly that to me. He um, wouldn't call himself a Christian, and he said, Andy, I, I respect the church, I respect Christians, and I'm quite happy for you to be trying to reach out to non-religious people like me, but um, surely you can't be telling um, people of other religions in my office um, that they're wrong. Surely it's just offensive to be telling them that they're worshipping God in the wrong way. After all, they're honest and sincere about their religion. Isn't it just arrogant to be telling them that they're wrong? Now, um, I don't know what you make of that. Uh, It's clearly a popular opinion. Um, Never one to skimp on research. I went on Google this week and typed in, is it arrogant for Christians to evangelize people of other religions? Um, Here are some of the results I got back in the top 50 hits. Um, An article from the Huffington Post, which argued that Christian proselytizing is a form of oppression. Uh, An article from The Guardian which described evangelism as, quote, uh, a cringing embarrassment. Uh, And an article from the BBC about a Christian woman who'd invited her Muslim colleague to come to church with her. And the article was discussing whether she was guilty of workplace bullying for having done so. See, it's a popular opinion that it's arrogant, uh, offensive, unkind to evangelize people of other religions. And I wonder what what you make of that uh, as a Christian. 
Uh, We're here back in Acts chapter 9 together this morning, carrying on our series in the book of Acts. And if you know the book, if you've been with us, you'll know that the agenda is set in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when Jesus says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's the program for the book, and we're given a progress report halfway through the passage that was read for us. I wonder if you noticed it, chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. You see, um, that, um, that mission, the, the witnesses, the gospel ringing out from them, we've seen it happen in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. And then the last couple of chapters, we've seen the gospel spread as witnesses share the good news of Jesus in um, Judea and Samaria. And so the gospel has gone out in the heart of um, Old Testament Israel and to the boundaries of what would have been Old Testament Israel. People have been becoming Christians who are Jews and people who are um, uh, what one commentator calls semi-detached Jews, if you like. Um, Samaritans who are on the fringes of God's people already. Um, The Ethiopian eunuch who's a God-fearer who'd been into the temple. And so um, here, at the end of chapter, uh, halfway through chapter 9, And just before chapter 10, um, we come to um, this this progress report. The gospel has now gone out in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And we're on the edge of the gospel going global. For the first time, people who are just genuinely, clearly followers of another religion are going to become Christians. Acts chapter 10 is going to see Cornelius and his family, his, ha- his whole household, turn to Christ from another religion. The gospel is going to go global. And here we are at the end of chapter 9 with these two dramatic miracle stories. We're just going to focus on verses 32 to 43 this morning. These two dramatic miracles that happen um, before the gospel goes global Um, Luke is sort of um, waggling on the tee, if you like. I'm not a golfer, but I'm told it's very important to set yourself up how you stand, have a good waggle and get yourself ready to hit the ball. And that's the sort of passage we have here. Peter is, he's getting us ready. He's preparing us for the fact that the gospel is going to go global as Peter goes to Cornelius' house and people of other religions are going to hear it. And there are these two dramatic miracles. And they are dramatic. Have a look at verse 32 with me. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit the saints, that means the Christians, in Lydda. Uh, Notice Lydda, a real place. Uh, These days it's called Lod, it's still there, a city. Uh, I'm told it's the only one with an international airport in Israel. So if you've been to Israel, you've probably been to, to Lydda. So a real place. There, verse 33, he found a man named Aeneas. Again, a real person, we're told his name. A paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. It's the miracle that parents of teenagers everywhere dream of, isn't it? But it's a dramatic miracle as this man who's been paralyzed for eight years, verse 34, immediately Aeneas got up. 
And then again, in Joppa, there's a disciple, verse 36, named Tabitha. Again, notice, Joppa, a real place. It's about 10 miles northwest of where Lydda was. It's on the coast. And here is a real person, Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas. You see, here is a a real person. We're told her name in two languages, no less. And she's a well-known person. Verse 36, she was always doing good and helping the poor. And um, she dies, verse 37, about that time she became sick and died. And there's this second dramatic miracle. Peter is called, and verse 40, turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, this woman who had been dead, sat up. Now, I wonder how you feel about miracle accounts like this one in this passage here. Um, It it may be that you come to this passage with serious doubts. You know, um, maybe people could believe this 2,000 years ago, but I live in 21st century forward. Uh, It may be that um, you have mixed feelings as you come to this passage. Maybe as a Christian you think, I I want to believe this, It's it's in the Bible after all, but can I really believe that this actually happened in history? Uh, Well, if we're having mixed feelings, let me... um, Let me invite you to consider the alternatives just for a moment as we dig into this passage. Uh, Could it be that this story is actually mythical and not historical? I think the problem with that alternative is that we're told places and people's names. Uh, Luke is a careful historian. You see that all through Luke Acts. And um, this is an early document And giving the names of prominent people and the places where they lived, it's really an invitation to his first readers. You don't believe it? Well, go and find out. You can meet them. You can ask their community about what happened to them. And Acts is full of these sort of careful historical details. It simply doesn't stack up to think that this is just a sort of myth or legend or something like that. So not mythical. Um, Could it be that it's illusional? You know, are we in the world of magic here? Is this sort of Penn and Teller or David Blaine or Dynamo or something like that? Well, again, with respect, I I think that underestimates the scale of what happens here in Acts chapter 9, to think that it's just an illusion. Aeneas, verse 34, no, verse 33, had been bedridden for eight years Now, I happen to know this church family is full of medical professionals, so um, why don't you ask one of them afterwards the sort of damage that eight years stuck in bed, unable to move, would do to someone's body. Uh, Damage to muscles and bones and nerves. Maybe you've broken an arm or a leg, and you can think how much physio it takes before you're up and about again. And here is a man who'd been in bed for nearly a decade, and Peter says the word, and immediately he got up and took his mat And here is a woman who is well-known and who dies and who is seen alive again by her community. It can't simply be magic or illusion. Surely not. Uh, Well, um, perhaps another alternative would be simply to say that it's irrational to believe in miracles in this day and age. Is it irrational to believe in miracles? Well, again, with respect, I think there's a sort of hidden logic Um, behind the idea that it's irrational to believe in miracles. I think it goes something like this. Um, Number one, God doesn't exist. Therefore, number two, the laws of science cannot be broken. Therefore, number three, miracles like this do not happen. And therefore, number four, since this didn't happen, 
God doesn't exist. But I guess you can immediately see there's a circularity to that logic there. What if God does exist? He can break the laws of science. And actually here, in this eyewitness testimony, this carefully researched document is the evidence we need to be convinced of that fact. Now, let me plead with you not to let your assumptions keep you from actually investigating the evidence in front of you. And so I want to suggest that what we have here is a record of two dramatic things that happened in history, miracles. And so the question is, what do they mean? And there are two things I think that we're meant to um, be convinced of and confident about because of these two miracles here at the end of chapter 9. We'll spend much longer on the first one uh, and a few minutes on the second. But the first one is this, um, to be confident of the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. I wonder if you noticed who did these miracles. Who was it who healed Aeneas? Now, um, a friend of mine giving their, um, their sort of split-second summary of the passage said, Peter does miracles. And maybe that's what we would have put as the heading over the passage. But notice verse 34. It's not Peter, is it? Verse 34, Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Again, verse 40, Peter sent them out of the room. He got down on his knees and prayed. And Tabitha gets up. Notice how people respond. Uh, Verse 35, all those who lived in Lydra and Shara saw him and turned not to Peter, to the Lord, to Jesus. Again, verse 42, it became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord, in Jesus. Um, It might be that you were feeling a certain sense of deja vu as we read this passage. And um, if you know Luke's gospel at all, it wouldn't surprise me if you were feeling that a little bit because these two miracles deliberately echo things that Jesus did in his life. Uh, Luke 5, a paralyzed man on a mat is brought to Jesus and Jesus simply says, get up to this man who's been paralyzed his whole life, get up. And the man gets up, takes his mat and walks. Very, very similar, isn't it? Uh, Luke 7, um, a widow's son is um, brought, um, uh, it's his funeral procession, it's brought past Jesus, all these widows here, and Jesus simply says to the dead boy, get up, and he gets up. And again, you see, really quite similar. And actually, the, um, the, the parallels, if you read those two passages, in terms of just the way the story is told, are striking. You see, we're meant to see here that what Peter is doing in these two miracles is, is what Jesus does. It's in Jesus' name, and these are really Jesus' miracles. They're here to show us the power of Jesus Uh, We've seen back in Acts 8 that Jesus is at the right hand of God in heaven, and yet he's not absent from the story. He's powerfully at work. Uh, Two things about Jesus' power then for us. Uh, Firstly, notice that it is power to cleanse the unclean. Power to cleanse the unclean. Um, during my university summers, I had, a, um, I had a job as a waiter, and we were very privileged on one occasion that some members of the royal family were coming to where, um, where I was working as a waiter. Um, but you can bet on that day that as one of the staff, you weren't going to be allowed out with creases on your shirt or dirt on there or something like that. No, no you had to be clean. And... Um, 
first century Judaism worked something like that. You see, um, uh, if you came into contact with someone who was sick or, or a dead body, it made you ritually unclean. You couldn't go into the temple. You couldn't draw near to God. Now, this is going to be important in Acts 10 and 11 because Peter is going to not want to go to people of other religions because they're ritually unclean. And here we see the power of Jesus that when Jesus comes into contact with those who are unclean, it's not that Jesus is defiled, and we see this in the Gospels. It's not that Jesus is defiled. It's not that Jesus' man, Peter, is defiled. No, he is able to make them clean. The sickness is healed, the dead raised. Jesus has the power, uh, through his death on the cross, to cleanse people who are spiritually unclean. Now, I don't know, you're um, here this morning, and uh, it may be that actually you feel something on your conscience, that you're just very aware um, ways on your conscience makes you unclean. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel far from God. And here in Acts 9, we're reminded that Jesus has the power to go to those who are spiritually unclean and to cleanse them of every stain. And so as the gospel goes out to people of all nations and every religion, we're to know that Jesus can take unclean people and wash them, that no one is too far off, no one is too unclean for the power of Jesus. Uh, But then secondly, notice that it is resurrection power that we see here. And there's a repeated phrase. We get it with both of these healings, both of these miracles. Um, Have a look at verse 34. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and tidy up your mat. Get up. Uh, Again, verse 40, Tabitha, get up. You see that phrase that we get twice with both of these miracles. Um, the, the word is literally rise. And some of the English translations will have that one word, rise. It's the word that Peter uses back in Acts 2 for the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's just a pointer to what these miracles are about. The power of Jesus to raise people into new life in a new world. See, the miracles of Jesus that these two miracles echo, they're like um, an opportunity to peer through the keyhole into the new world that Jesus is bringing. Uh, The world we live in at the moment is one full of sickness and suffering and pain and death. And we've seen that in the last few weeks, haven't we? But Jesus promises that through his resurrection, he will bring about a new world where there is no more crying or suffering or pain or death anymore. Not only will he cleanse us of our sins, but he will raise us to eternal life where there is no more sickness, suffering, pain, or death. Um, A few years ago, some friends of ours bought a house without having ever seen the house that they were buying. Uh, What they bought um, at the time was just rubble on the floor. Um, It was a new development, and um, one house went up before before all of the others. It was a show home. And I don't know, maybe you've looked around a show home. Uh, They went in there, and it was perfectly laid out. It was everything that they wanted their house to be. Of course, you looked out of the windows, and it was just rubble. It was a mess out there. But this one house had been built already so that you could see what the development would look like. 
and they bought on the strength of that. And you see, the miracles of Jesus and these miracles, they work like that. They show us what the new world will look like when Jesus, through the power of his resurrection, fixes all that is broken by the sin and and shattered nature of our world. You see, Jesus has the power through his resurrection to deal with the most serious things that we face. Sickness, suffering, bereavement, pain, loss, death itself. And these miracles are here to give us confidence that that is the power that Jesus has. As the gospel is about to go global to people of every nation, to the ends of the earth, to people of other religions, we're to see that Jesus has the power to deal with the most serious things that we face. Uh, It might be that you're here this morning and you don't know quite what to make of um, Christianity or Jesus. Uh, Maybe you're here with a friend, maybe you just come back to church after a number of years away. And if that's you, um, I'd love to meet you afterwards. You're very welcome here. We love to have new people amongst us. But look, I just want to point out one thing to you. Jesus didn't come to, um, to give you a changed culture or community, a new um, set of ethics or philosophy, a new religion. Jesus came to deal with the most serious problems that you face in your life. Pain, suffering, sickness, death itself, the problem of your spiritual uncleanness before God. Uh, It's not that if you become a Christian today, all of the problems that you face in life will go away just like that. But Jesus can cleanse people of their sin today and on the day of the resurrection, the day that he comes back, he can give you confidence that every problem that you face will be dealt with. A world with no more pain, bereavement, sickness, suffering or loss. A world where death is defeated and we can be with him eternally forever. And look, if you're a Christian person here today and you're thinking about this whole issue of sharing the gospel with people of other religions and maybe we feel that that hesitation, this passage reminds us, gives us confidence in the power of Jesus. Those people of other nations, other cultures and other religions, they face all of the biggest problems that you face the same problems, the problems of sickness and suffering and pain and bereavement and loss, the problem of death. And only Jesus can deal with those problems through his death and resurrection. Your aggressively secular colleague may live a very ethical life. They may put you to shame in the quality of how they live. They may have as much spirituality as they want, thank you very much. But they do not have an answer for the fact that one day they will die. And Jesus has the power to raise them. That is the gospel that we have for them. Uh, Your Muslim neighbor may be enormously devoted to to their God, and they may be very sincere. They may put your prayer life to shame, but in this broken world, only Jesus has the power to offer them new creation, the power to deal with the most serious things that they face, the power to cleanse them of their sin, and the power to raise them to new life the power of Jesus. But then secondly, this passage shows us the authority of Jesus. Uh, Sorry, the authority of the gospel. 
uh, the power of Jesus, but also the authority of the gospel. And that is to say that the message of Jesus really is from God and really is intended to go out to people of all nations and, yes, people of other religions. And to see this, I think we need to to step back from our passage and to ask a question. Um, To be honest, it's a question that troubled me for a good couple of weeks as I was thinking about this passage. And the question is this. um, Why Peter? Why are we back with Peter here? You know, um, we love Peter, don't get me wrong, but in Acts chapter 9, we're introduced to Saul, whose name is also Paul. And in verse 15 of of chapter 9, we're told that by Jesus, that this man is Jesus' chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and their kings. And so um, given that that's the case, and given that in Acts 13, we're going to see Paul and Barnabas get on with it and start to spread the gospel um, all around the Mediterranean world, um, why are we back with Peter for four chapters before we get back to Paul, who we've just been introduced to? And I think to, to understand that, we need to, we need to see and remember who Peter is. And Peter's really the, um, the leader of the apostles. He's the first of the witnesses and proclaimers of the gospel that Jesus establishes. It was Peter who preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and it's Peter in Acts 8 who goes to authenticate the mission to the Samaritans. And Peter is a pretty big deal. And Acts 9 is to give us confidence that Peter really is Jesus' man bringing Jesus' message. Why the close parallels with the miracles of Jesus? Well, here we see that Peter, as as he is about to go global to Gentiles, is Jesus' man continuing Jesus' ministry. I am... I have lots of flaws as a human being. Some of you who've been getting to know me will know some of them already. Um, One of my many flaws is that um, I'm a lifelong follower of Arsenal Football Club. And, um, yeah, I got the same sort of reaction at the last service as well. And... um, uh, if, you, if you know football, you'll, um, you'll know that this season there has been much discussion and debate about whether our manager, Arsene Wenger, would sign a new contract. And um, the way that things go with these sorts of rumours, as with, with every walk of life, really, is um, the rumours began to spread on Twitter. Um, opinions were leaked from the clubs. The, um, the newspapers had things to say. You know, um, opinions abounded. But it was only when the... Um, the spokesperson for Arsenal Football Club stood up and made a statement, Arsene Wenger has signed a contract for another two years. It was only when the spokesman stood up and made the statement that we actually knew for certain, with confidence, what was going on. See, the point here in Acts 9, um, if I can put it like this, um, God's plan for the gospel to be for everyone, for people of other religions and to the ends of the earth, it's not sort of leaked on Twitter. It's not something we have to speculate about, that, you know, that we have to work out and guess. Um, it's not the Apostle Paul's special hobby horse that the gospel should be for Gentiles. It's not just plan B because things didn't go that well in Jerusalem or something like that. No, um, the fact that we see here through these miracles that this is Jesus' ministry by being continued by Jesus' spokesman, Peter, is to give us confidence 
that it really is God's message that we take to people of all nations, to the ends of the earth, to people of other religions. I think actually um, this helps with um, the issue of why we don't often see miracles like this today. You know, in my evangelism, in my trying to tell people about Jesus, um, no paralytics have been healed and no dead people have been raised. And I take it that that's probably the same for you. And I think the reason for that is because these miracles are here to authenticate what Peter is doing as the gospel is about to go global for the very first time. I'm not saying I don't believe that God does miracles. Of course, we believe in a God who can do whatever he wants, a sovereign God. But these miracles aren't a pattern for what we ought to do in our evangelism. They underline for us the power of Jesus and the authority of the message that we're going to see in the following chapters go global. The gospel that you're trying to share with your friends and colleagues of other religions and I think we need to hear this. If, um, if I'm a Christian, and if I'm honest, my tendency is to hold back from sharing the gospel to people I know who follow other religions. Uh, you know, maybe for that, um, for that Hindu neighbor, I just feel like they're so sincere, and so I just hold back a little bit. You know, for my Jewish friend, well, uh, you know, at least he's a monotheistic and he honors the Bible. Maybe that's good enough, and I, and I just hold back. If that's me, well, I need to hear this that this message has God's authority. This is God's message for everyone of every religion that they need to hear about Jesus. Uh, We need to hear this if my tendency as a Christian is to leave world mission to other people. Uh, You know, I've got friends who are off being missionaries in um, Muslim-majority countries, and and they're quite good at crossing cultures and talking to people of other other faiths and cultures. But if I'm honest, I I find it quite hard talking to people who don't belong to my own culture. And so the temptation can be, well, I'll, I'll leave it to the experts. You know, we've got trainees who are good with international students. I could just leave it to them. This is God's message that he intends to go to people of all nations and of other religions. It comes with all of his authority and it offers them the power of Jesus. I can't hold back from sharing it with some people. I need to share it widely. And so let me ask again, is it arrogant? Is it offensive? Is it unkind to try to um, evangelize people of other religions? Well, now, here is a message that comes with the power of Jesus who can cleanse the sin of every person who comes to him. Here is a message that comes with the power of Jesus to fix a broken world and deal with all of the most serious things that they face. And here is a message that comes with the authority of God himself to go to every person Is it arrogant? Is it offensive? Is it unkind? No, I don't think it is. I need to pray and long and speak so that everyone from every background and every place can know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We should be praying that people from Sheffield, um, and there are many of other religions, from um, people of Doncaster, and there are many of other religions, and people of every nation hear the gospel and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, um, this week, a member of the church family was saying to me that they love a question that they can talk about over coffee. Now, if that's the sort of thing that horrifies you, um, here's a phrase for you to memorize. Um, I'm still thinking about it, and um, I need a bit more time. You say that, and that's your get-out-of-jail-free card. But if you'd like a question to chat about with one another, uh, here are a couple for you. Who do you find it hard to share the gospel with? And why is that? Who do you find it hard to share the gospel with? And why is that? And then how might Acts 9 encourage us to do that? I'm going to pray. Our Lord God, we praise you for the gospel that we've been given and we praise you that it is a global gospel, a gospel that's even found us in um, the UK. And um, we pray that you would give us confidence in the power of Jesus and the authority of the message to go um, to all nations, to the ends of the earth with it, to share it widely in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.